Hello, I'm Dr. Annalene Weston, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Matters, our latest series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. As the name suggests, Risk Matters is all about managing risk. In this podcast series, we'll be taking your feedback and queries and putting them to the leading industry experts, getting them to answer the difficult questions about managing risk and working safely. It's all about what to do when managing risks matters most. So in this edition, I'm going to be speaking to Dr. Dan Pronk. Now, many of you will remember that Dan presented at our signature event earlier on this year regarding the topic of the Resilient Shield and the feedback that we had and the questions we had regarding this was extraordinary. So we've invited him back to do a podcast. So Dr. Dan Pronk completed a Bachelor of Exercise Science at Griffith University in 1999 before studying medicine at Flinders University on an army scholarship. In 2007, Dr. Pronk was posted to his first army unit in Darwin as a regimental medical officer and after being discharged in 2014, commenced an MBA through the University of South Australia, which he successfully completed in December 2016. In July 2015, Dr. Pronk accepted the Deputy Medical Superintendent role at a regional hospital in Queensland where he worked until late 2017, completing his MBA, as I said, in 2016. He then took the position as Medical Director of the South Australia Prison Health Service. Dr. Pronk served for three years in that role, completing an Associate Fellowship of the Royal Australian College of Medical Administrators during his tenure. And as many of you know, Dan Pronk is part of the Resilience Shield project, and I'll link that in the episode notes. So welcome, Dan. Annalene, it's a pleasure to be here. So talking about the Resilience Shield, which is, of course, the project that you work on with your brother and your colleague, that's correct, isn't it? Yes. Can you just start off by explaining to us the concept of a Resilience Shield, please? So that concept fell out of, I'll try and keep it quite a long story short, but it was during my period of negotiating transition out of the military back to a civilian life and just the challenges that I faced with that, I found that I, I sort of lost my resilience, if you like, and, and it got me reflecting on the, what were the factors that made us so resilient when being part of an organisation like the Army and especially like the SAS Regiment, a small, tight-knit, uh, highly focused group and, and I figured if I could rebuild, if I could identify them and rebuild them, I could get back to a resilient version of myself. And that led to this deep dive into, well, for a start, what the concept of resilience actually is. What is resilience? That was the starting point. And then that led to what can we be doing day in, day out to be building resilience. And as I went along, I teamed up with my brother, Ben, who was a career SAS officer and another bloke, Tim Curtis, likewise a career SAS officer. And we started to, to look at our own experiences, our military experiences, broader case studies in resilience and look at the science behind stress and resilience, what we know scientifically have proven causes resilience. And we started to formulate this model that just seemed to be a little bit novel that described resilience as dynamic, as multifactorial and as modifiable. So something that we knew you could build. And that formed the shield model with the, the various layers which represent different areas or domains in your life that we know you can be doing things to build resilience. No, that's really helpful. Thank you. And it's certainly dynamic. I know myself, my resilience can wax and wane, even if I'm just tired. I'm far less resilient than I would be if I'm not, or if I'm not in the right frame of mind. So can I just ask, which came first, the doctor or the SAS? 
Uh, the doctor. So I did my medical schooling on an army scholarship. Oh, you did? Yeah. So I, I had done my med school, done, did two years as a junior doctor in civilian hospitals. And then I went into the army and about 18 months into my time with the army, so properly in uniform, I'd been with the army all through on this scholarship, but actually with army units about 18 months uh, into that, I got the chance to go and do SAS selection, got through that, and that led to special operations. So doctor first and then moved to the special operations. So when you were at medical school on that program, did you used to have to go and do time with the army? No, it was they, and I don't know if it's changed now, but there was very little uh, military requirement. It was basically the you were full-time army, they paid your wage and, and paid for your schooling, but you, you were basically sent off to, to get your med degree and they, they left you alone to focus on your studies and your junior doctor time. And then after that, you go into the military system. Uh, in, in the UK, it was a little bit different because I have friends, dentists who were on the military program. They used to have to go for a certain number of weeks and then they'd do this, I guess, training afterwards before they were posted. And they tell me reliably that dentists can't drill, as in they can't drill, they can march. They yes. can drill the other way, but apparently dentists are rubbish <laughs> at the other side. I don't oh, know if that's think, true. Yeah, no, I think that I don't want to talk ill of dentists, certainly. <laughs> we, we did Not a, in this company, an, an abbreviated, <laughs> abbreviated uh, officer training at yeah. Royal, Royal Military College at RMC Duntroon in Canberra. And they they call it the, the knife, well, not formally, but they call it the knife-fork-spoon course. It's basically this is abbreviated, here's how you behave roughly like an officer in the military. And so it's, it's for all what's called specialist service officers. So your doctors, your dentists, your chaplains, your physios, the list goes on. And yeah, I can say with authority, none of us were particularly good at the, <laughs> the, the drill side of things, which made for some, some entertaining, like on paper, intelligent people struggling with left and right was, uh, and, and often myself actually. Well, good to know. <laughs> So thank you for explaining the concept of the resilience shield. Now, moving on from that then, we talk a lot of dental protection about burnout and about why resilience is important. But I suppose for those who haven't had the opportunity to consider this before, what do you think the importance of building resilience is? Or why would you explain to somebody that this matters? I guess, how would you explain to someone this matters? Why, who cares? Yeah, it can often be a really hard sell to people who don't yet see any signs of, of a stress effect from their role or who, who haven't burnt out. I mean, it's quite an easy sell to someone who's sort of burnt out and been a bit fried and come back from that, they get it. And in that setting, resilience gets, gets used as the term of, of the, the, the tools that help you bounce back. You know, that is one of the definitions of resilience when you go looking for them. So it can often be a hard sell to people who are functioning and maybe even thriving in their role as a dentist, as a doctor, as a you know police officer, you, you name it. And particularly if they're quite early in their career and they're still in that that kind of you know honeymoon period, for want of a better term, where they're really they're using the skills that they've been trained towards. They can see the purpose. They're still attached to the purpose of their work. It can be a hard sell. And I, I think the you know leaning on the the, the data basically is a, is but the data is pretty damning in any of these roles about the rates of mental and physical health consequences of these roles we know that a role like dentistry is a very high stress role we know that the rates of mental health is uh, you know diagnoses are, are higher in dentists than the general population like they are in in doctors in police officers in military personnel so 
Um, it, but it, it can be a real challenge trying to sort of say to them, hey, the statistics suggest that you will be more likely to suffer a mental health injury down the track is a bit of a bit hard when someone's in the prime of their career maybe and, and not seeing the need just yet. So, But I think at a minimum, seeding these thoughts and, and just reinforcing these positive behaviours and then oftentimes it's the person needs to see the relevance of it for themselves and, and sadly that often only comes when they start to have signs of, of a mental or a physical health injury that's related to the stress of the role. No, absolutely. And of course, the studies show us in dentistry and medicine that burnt out practitioners are more likely to make a mistake, more likely mm. for a patient to suffer harm. And that's something that I think probably brought burnout to our attention at Dental Protection. We just didn't know what it was in some ways. Well, we knew what burnout was. But mm. what I mean by that, just to explain, is we'd have people ring up and a patient had been harmed. And we'd get off the phone and we'd say, oh, gosh, that poor practitioner, because it really was the last thing they needed was for this yeah. to happen when you consider all these other things going on in their life. And then we realized that actually it's the other way because the practitioner doesn't exist in a vacuum. They were more susceptible to make a mistake because of the factors in their life, the immense and emotional stresses and burdens they were under, the fact they were suffering with burnout. And I think often we see for many practitioners they have, as you said, they're quite happy, they're thriving, they're moving through their lives beautifully, never failed anything, never failed their driving test, always been successful. Mm. And then something happens, something goes wrong, and often it's causing harm to a patient. And they hit the wall and they really, really don't know what to do. And that's when they really need to draw on their resilience. So what sort of things or advice could you give to colleagues who are facing that existential crisis where something's gone wrong, it's a big shock to the system, and now they need to draw on some skills that maybe they haven't developed. Yeah, that's a tough one. And this is something that we've reflected a lot on with regards to these, these really uh, consuming professions like dentistry or medicine or, or the military for us in our former lives, that you can really be invested and, and potentially over-invested in your work identity. And the psychologists use a, a term identity fusion that, that we talk to in, uh, in the book and in our presentations. And, and this concept is you see yourself as your work role. There's no air gap between your identity as a person and what's written on your business card. And while that's going well, if things are going well professionally, that's great. You've got this positive identity. You've got positive self-esteem, but it's often what's called contingent self-esteem. It's con contingent on your work role. And, and I fell into this trap uh, sort of hook, line and sinker with the, the military. I saw myself as my military role and that, that led to problems when I discharged and I wasn't that person anymore. I lost my identity. But I think coming back to the situation where you have a, a patient complaint or a bad outcome, if your identity fused and you see yourself as your work role, then something going wrong at work is a personal attack on Absolutely. you or a, a, yeah, a, a patient complaint. And, and so I think the, in those times of crisis, a, a few things are useful. I think one is, well, one is, is, is uh, around locus of control. What can you control and what you can't control? And, and so in that space, and I recently had this discussion with a, a group of, of doctors in the context of talks put on by a, a medical indemnity insurance, and we were looking at this very thing. And, and there's a lot of stuff that's happening that's completely outside your ability to control or influence when there's a, a patient complaint. They're going to be saying a lot of things. There's going to be 
uh, often legal representation with them that may be amplifying or false, fal not falsifying lawyers don't do that, do they? <laughs> but, but it may not be an accurate representation from the practitioner's perspective of what's happened. And that can be hugely stressful. But I think just identifying that you cannot do anything about that and trying to pare back and focus your energy on what you can control and what you can influence uh, is very important. That's a time where you really need to really sort of batten down the hatches and focus on all the the well-being stuff and, and building that personal resilience. So paying close attention to things like your diet, like your sleep, like your exercise, like maintaining uh, and, and your close interpersonal relationships. It's sort of about drawing everything in and focusing on what you can control and do well because it is such a stressful situation and often the time frame that that thing plays out over is not defined you don't know when the end point's coming so yeah and you're often in for the long run if it does get dragged through a complaints process and, and heaven forbid it you know a coroner's court in the instance of medical professionals that can you know, we be... get them occasionally too yeah, and we're course. poorly prepared yeah. for them of course as dental practitioners because it's for a doctor i think coroner's court is something yeah. that you would all have one eye on but for dentists yeah. if we do have a coroner's matter it's, it's quite shocking for the dentist because we yeah. just don't expect that in no. our pathway but it does can and does happen oh absolutely two things about what, what you said then the first thing is i was talking with um, a lady called dr rachel morris on how to fail and she was saying that you can actually get a piece of paper and draw a circle on it and write down in the circle what's inside in your control and mm. write outside the circle what's outside your control. And it's a really helpful exercise. So I thought I'd try it. And mm. let's just say I drew the circle way too big on the page because <laughs> I can yeah. control far less yeah, than yeah. I thought I could. So yeah. I thought that that was interesting. And the other thing you were saying about drawing on the well-being, one of the problems that we see, and I don't know how we counter this, Dan, is that when you're challenged and your whole self-concept's been challenged right now mm. and it feels personal, the last thing many people want to do is tell their friends or their partner. They keep it a secret, which is dangerous in itself, isn't it? Yeah. But they keep it to themselves. They fall on some really unhealthy behavior crutches, yep. which might be unhealthy food, drinking, yep. Yep. drugs. These yep. are things that we see. So unfortunately, sometimes our most human of response isn't actually to invest in our well-being, but it's to invest in a whole load of unhealthy things, isn't yeah. it? Is that something you've seen in the past? Oh, of course. And I mean, the, all of those, when we look at coping strategies, they fall into two different camps. There's your adaptive ones, the positive stuff, and then your maladaptive coping strategies. And the problem with the, the maladaptive ones is they, they work and they're easy often. So things like having a drink or, you know, drugs, the, these sort of things, or avoidance or uh, distraction, these sort of things, they, they work, uh, but only short term. They're not adaptive long term strategies. And and so it's, I think it's, it's not so much, uh, in my opinion, about not doing those things, but, but just making sure that you're aware when you are doing those things that they're maladaptive. And, you know, hey, if you've had a hell of a day and you just want to have some, some drinks and forget about it, then great. But know that, that that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And as long as that's not your only tool in the toolkit, <laughs> as long as you've got some adaptive strategies as well, things like some, some exercise, you know, maybe a bit of gratitude, some meditation, investing in your personal relationships and, and maybe some, you know, uh, mental health support, which I think is something that we're, as healthcare professionals, often quite dismissive of or uh, reluctant to engage in. I'd but agree. I think particularly in these times of, of crisis, like if you have had a complaint and this professional challenge, 
then tapping into, I see these three different groups of external people as being very useful for support. There's your, what I call your tribe. So your workmates who can viscerally understand what it must be like for, for you to be going through what you're going through. Maybe they've had a complaint or if they haven't, they can at least appreciate what, what, a, what a time that might be. So if you've got workmates you can talk to, great. Often there's barriers there. You can't be completely vulnerable and, and authentic to your workmates or you may not want to talk to them about it. I think that's where you, your family and friends. So hopefully you've got at least one person outside of work who you can be vulnerable and deeply open and honest around. And, but the thing with family and friends outside of your, your profession, outside of your tribe, they won't be able to empathise. They won't truly get it, but hopefully you can connect with them on just you know around your feelings of how it makes you feel rather than, than that authentic uh, empathy. And then there's the mental health professionals who often won't be able to empathise. They, they won't know you on that deep, authentic, vulnerable level, but that's their power. They can stay professionally distanced. They can stay objective and they have the professional evidence-based tools to help you work your way through that. And so I sort of, I've started to think of this as this trauma processing trident, if you like. So the handle of the trident is you looking after your own well-being. get active in your own rescue is a great Marcus Aurelius quote that we love in the Resilient Shield. But that the handle is you, and then the three prongs of the trident are your tribe, tap into them for that empathy, uh, your family and friends tap into them for that vulnerable, uh, authentic support, and then the mental health professionals for that, that uh, evidence-based professional tools. And, and I think done well, those three groups can really help you through crisis. No, I absolutely agree. And I think there has in the past been fear of health providers in approaching health, other health providers for help, because there's been this fear that you're going to have a mandatory notification made yeah. against you. And I just want to assure, reassure everyone listening that that is not the case. Uh, we're entitled to have mental health issues too. We're entitled to have health issues and go to the doctor mm. and seek advice and guidance. And we're entitled to patient privacy as well. You're not going to have a mandatory notification made about you by your GP, if you go and say, hey, I'm finding work hard, I'm feeling a bit depressed, or I'm struggling a bit with some of these things, they're there to help. And I just wanted to say that because yes. we do find when we refer people to our oh, confidential yeah. counselling service, we can come across this fear, well, are you not just setting me up? Yep. Well, yep. Not at all. We're trying to support you. We're going the other way. We're not trying to set you up. We're trying to support I wanted to pick up on your identity fusion. So I'd call that self-concept, but I think we're talking about the same thing. This idea where you identify as being a doctor or you identify as being a soldier. So as I said, this can be challenged, as we've been saying, when there's a complaint or when something goes wrong. How do you think we can manage that to not be so fused to one concept? I know what I think. I want to know what you think. <laughs> oh, look, we and, and when we when we present around Resilience Shield, I, I tend to use this Venn diagram that's sort of got your identity in the centre and then these four overlapping diagrams. And one of them's your role. And, and indeed, you know, there should be a decent degree of overlap. You should identify as your work role, but that shouldn't be a complete overlap that you only see yourself as that. And in that diagram, that one of the other overlapping circles is family and friends. So see yourself and invest in your relationships outside of work when you take off your work uniform and hopefully you can be a more authentic and vulnerable version of yourself in that environment. So you see yourself identify as, as that person, a member of family and friends. And then ideally have other groups that you are a part of, things, 
outside of work, interests, hobbies, ideally with groups that are unrelated to your work uh, space. So you're not on a you know touch footy team with your workmates. Although that's I'm not saying that's not positive. It is, but but to to keep a foot in other camps that are outside that work tribe is very healthy, and it helps to give you perspective, and and it also helps to it, it balances you out as a as a person. And if if you're less invested in that work identity, then when there is something that goes terribly wrong at work, it's still devastating. Don't get me wrong, but you don't see yourself as a complete failure. You know, it's not like oh, it's all over type thing as you might if your identity fused and, and you take that as a person, you can see that more objectively. Yeah, that went horribly wrong. And, and it's still, of course, going to be stressful, but you can see yourself as a, well, I'm still, you know, doing okay as a, as a dad or as a, as a wife or as a husband or a son or a daughter. If you if identify as a family, you can fall back on that. You've still got these other groups, hopefully, that you can still have some positive form of identity. And so maintaining that more balanced identity and, and drawing back a bit from investment in your work identity uh, makes you more balanced. It, it makes you more resilient. We know this for sure because mm-hmm. you're not all in. It's like a diversified share portfolio. Absolutely. If you, yeah, if you chuck all your money in one share and it tanks, you're broke. It's the same with your identity. You need to diversify so you've got some fallback for when things go wrong in the other areas. And aside from anything, identif- identity-fused people are boring as hell to be sat next to at a dinner party. Yeah, <laughs> that's certainly so. It's so, true. Why do you think it was the soldier that you identified with more strongly than the doctor? Oh, that was a, a byproduct of the environment. It was just such an in, intense bond that we developed in that organisation. That and, and I was the only doctor with uh, the SAS regiment at the time. So there was only one doctor. So I didn't have a group that I was around and identifying with. I, I, I had medics. Uh, so there was a, a group of medics and certainly I had that real tribal sense of affiliation with the, the, the medical troop within the SAS regiment. But I guess because we were spending so much time in places like Afghanistan in that war fighting role that really highlighted the, the soldier element of my unique role with that organisation. But I, so, yeah, I guess it was, uh, well, maybe not, I don't know if it was the soldier that I identified with, but it, it was just being part of that organisation mm-hmm. that I had identi- identity fused with, if you like. I was, I was and, and social identity theory, once again, a, a social psychological concept. We form these groups and, and we see them as our in-groups and then by virtue of that, everything else is an out-group. And, and so I'd really... Uh, formed a strong association with the military and particularly the the military special operations in group and and that just got reinforced by these really uh, intense experiences that I had over that period with them which as you were saying only your tribe would understand because yeah, only your tribe were there yeah that's exactly right and and that's not to be dismissive of people's experiences outside of your own and it's not none of this resilience or stress or trauma is it's not a competition uh, for sure, I, I fear that sometimes people look at their own situation and objectively try and compare it to someone else's and, and sort of, you know, they, they can go one of two ways. They can either think, well, you know, why am I struggling? They've had heaps worse and they're going okay, or vice versa. They can think, well, why are they struggling? I've I'm, I'm got it worse than them and, and I'm doing all right. And it just doesn't work that way at all. But, yeah, coming back to that tribe, 
it really is, in my opinion, only people within your work environment or who have experienced something that's that's really similar to you that are going to be able to empathise, and you can get that that really powerful uh, visceral sense of empathy from. Yeah, that feedback. I have to say, I read a quote the other day, and it was something along the lines of, "If you and everybody else put all their problems in a bucket, trust me, you'd take yours back." And so I know what you're saying. You can look and go, "Well." you've got it harder than me or I've got it harder than you. But the reality of it is, is you don't know what's going on in other people's yeah. lives and you'd rather pick your problems over someone else's. That's for sure. So talking then about this sort of having protective, so this diversifying your personality portfolio for want of a better way of putting it. One advantage, and I think this is something my colleague Colin raised with you when you mm. were giving your presentation at our signature event, which is how yeah. many of our listeners would have um, come across you, was this concept of having... I guess, challenging things outside work, which become a really safe place to fail. So we've had a crack at failing before it actually happens with a patient and having a negative outcome. So Colin used the example of karate, which is not such a good example for him because he's a black belt. So perhaps a better example for those of us who are not. But would you agree that that's quite helpful to have sort of challenging um, hobbies I mean, I'm not talking necessarily we all have to do extreme sports, but to put yourself sometimes in positions outside of work, which are slightly uncomfortable. So when you are challenged at work, it's not so much of a shock or do you think that's not necessary? I think it's absolutely essential, to be honest. I mean, we're all going to experience stress and these negative situations in our life. And either we can live a comfortable first world existence and then see how we go when we meet with them and cross our fingers, or we can try and prepare ourselves as best we can for what that might be like. And I'm a massive advocate of that try and prepare piece and do uncomfortable things and and push in a safe space to the point of failure and see what that looks like and then back up and regroup and and push again. And and that comes back to having these interests outside of work and being able to test ourselves and fail safely in these environments. And like you said, it doesn't need to be uh, adrenaline sports. This can be, you know, a bit of study outside of, of work, and and certainly over the years, I've I've done a, a bit of uh, study here and there in part time, and there's stuff that I've just completely sucked at. There was one <laughs> one masters that I, I flunked out of. I dropped it because I was no good at it, and and that was pretty confronting to me academically. I'd done my medical degree and and uh, my GP specialist qualification and things, and then I just struggled with with this. Uh, masters and changed tack and and ended up doing an MBA and that fit better and I did better at it but but my point being it, it's yeah it doesn't need to be sport doesn't need to be downhill mountain bike riding or whatever else just just challenging yourself and trying to move away from that, having a fixed mindset being one who sees themselves as a success and and then needs to positively reinforce that and then the second that they fail at something that's and it's, 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 again, talks to, you know, often identity fused people have a very fixed mindset. They see themselves as their role. And while they're going, well, that's great. The second they fail, everything's a, a catastrophe. And, and so the, the opposite of a fixed mindset is a growth mindset where, yeah, and Carol Dweck has done some fantastic stuff around mindset. And it's well worth a, a look, in my opinion, but trying to move more towards that growth mindset that, that sees challenges uh, and certainly sees failure as an opportunity to grow rather than this, this really confrontational experience that challenges their, their ego and their self. And you can get that by having some, some interest outside of work in, where, you, where you, you, you challenge yourself. And I try on a daily basis to, to do something, at least something uncomfortable. 
and I find that works for me. I've got an ice bath at home and that's... that's oh, have um, you? You're one of one, those, one of are things. you? I'm one of those. Yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> the um, SAS wasn't hard enough. Massive. Now I'm going to go in an ice bath well, every day. Well, no, I mean, it was, yeah. It, but, but it's a good example of something that despite having done it pretty much daily for years now is still something I don't want to do every day. <laughs> it's sort of my body's you screaming at me. You me. <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it needn't be that either. But But the point being, I think it's very useful to have those arenas in your life where you can try to the point of failure and it's it's not as consequential as a, as a sort of big failure at work. That, I think it's really helpful advice and it's just all sorts of things. I've got young children, I know you have children too, and they always make the kids speak in class every term the kids have to give some sort of a presentation and some of the yeah. parents can say, you know, please don't make my child do this. My child is really shy. My child finds it's hard and I can understand that and I sympathise with that. But I can't also help but feel by the same respect that you're going to have to speak in front of other people as an adult. You're going to have to speak in your workplace. There are times when people just have to get up and explain whether it's their presentation or their product or as a dentist, you are going to have to talk to patients. So I actually think it's quite helpful that they're building that challenge in and teaching that skill quite young. Because the first time that you talk in front of other people, you don't want it to be something really important. Agreed. And this, this uh, I mentioned this talking gig that I did recently with the medical indemnity crew and, and Richard Harris, the cave diving and yeah, yeah. type Ty Caprisky, he was on that. And he's a huge advocate of controlled risk taking in kids. That's kind of something that he stands for and, and he's used that Australian of the Year platform to promote that. And it's it's everything you're talking about. If we shelter our kids and we're the helicopter parents or I heard the term bulldozer parent that I liked from actually a school principal used it. Uh, <laughs> I've met but, a few of those. Yeah, so if, you, if you're just clearing the path for your kid to, to move along unchallenged throughout their youth, you're setting them up for, for failure in adult life because, uh, yeah, the, the big world, they don't care whether you, you're shy or not. you got to step That's up right. and so I, I think, and it's it's within reason, you don't want to, you, obviously you don't want to, kind of traumatise a kid by making them public speak to the point where it's detrimental. But it comes back to that pushing them outside their comfort zone. And that is the only way that you can you can evolve, that you can grow and that you can build resilience. You need stress to build resilience, yeah. plain and simple. You need discomfort to change. And to, yeah, it, it's one of those really hard things, one of those really hard truths. And that yeah. probably is quite hard for people to hear. You need stress to build resilience. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, from really difficult situations, you grow. And it's fascinating how many people we take through that the complaint comes in and it's an ARPA complaint or it's a legal mm. complaint. And that practitioner will be absolutely devastated, yeah. uh, which is completely normal. Or they'll be really angry sometimes, yeah. which is also completely normal. In fact, there's no abnormal way to react to something terrible like that. And we'll go through the process, which has moments of stress. It's not like uniformly stressful. It has spikes of stress. So there's times they don't need to think about it and times when it very much needs to be front of mind, when they need to be in front of the regulator or we've got a court Mm. deadline or whatever the reason is. What I find fascinating is almost without exception, when you get to the end of that, the practitioner says, is it weird that I feel really grateful that this happened to me? Mm. Like, does that make me weird? No, that makes you a completely healthy, functioning, growth mindset human because what you've done is you've said, gee, that was awful, but look at what I've learned and look how much safer I am and what how much better, for want of a better word, I am as a practitioner as a consequence of this event. And of course, they never would have wanted the patient to be harmed or to be upset. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, if I can take something good away from this, 
it's my growth. It's all these lessons I've learned. Yeah. But yeah, they wouldn't get that if the, yeah. they hadn't had the complaint, I guess. Well, it's the old, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger type yeah. uh, uh, quote. But the, and the, the more formal construct that they look at as, as post-traumatic growth is a, an interesting one and one I love to mention when I can because we all know about post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress disorder. You have a stress event, it knocks you off your baseline level of function. And then the PTSD is when you, you stay down, you don't mm-hmm. bounce back. And, and that's, uh, you know, that's very real, of course, and it gets the attention it should. But the reality is after a, a, a critical incident or a traumatic experience like a patient com- complaint will be, the majority of people or any sort of post-traumatic stress type situation, the majority of people will come back to their baseline level of function. And, mm-hmm. and the stats are somewhere around 80%, depending on, on what stats you look at. But then there's a percentage of people that actually a better version of themselves because of their traumatic experience. And it sounds weird, but it gives them an opportunity to recalibrate and, like you say, to, to think, well, hey, you know, that happened and it sucked, but I'm going to be so much better now. It's given me a new perspective on this. I'm so much more grateful for that. Or maybe they might. Uh, maybe that might be the catalyst to ease back a bit from work and realise, well, maybe. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, that, that post-traumatic growth, is, and we see it a lot in military people as well. I consider myself to experience post-traumatic growth from these negative experiences in uniform, thinking, well, hey, I've got a, I'm a better version of myself now. I'm a better husband, better father, uh, better doctor because of that stuff that happened. And, and it's, uh, yeah, so it doesn't surprise me to hear that you get that feedback from people that have gone through a, a fairly traumatic complaints process. Yeah, and I take heart from it, to be honest, because there's always that moment whenever, when the first time when someone calls and they are acutely distressed, oh, yeah. there's that flicker of fear as an advisor where you're thinking, gee, I hope we're going to be okay. Not I hope you're going to be okay, because bear in mind that once you ring me, you're stuck with me till the bitter end. But I hope we're going to get through this because, and and, and we do, we always do, but um, it is good that people can be so positive about it, I guess. It is great. Moving slightly, your team are so critical in healthcare and also in the military, your tribe, as Mm. you were calling them, which I think is a lovely way of putting that. But how do you think we can foster this and build resilience in our team? And what do you think some of the hallmarks and of a, are of an effective and functioning team? That's a good question and there's a, a lot to it. I think the, uh, well, authentic uh, and authentic leadership style, I think a degree of vulnerability goes a long way in a team structure, particularly a hierarchical one. And looking at my role in the military medical sort of setting where I was the the boss of 20 or 30 medics at these units that rather than trying to create a professional distance trying to bridge that professional gap and 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 being able to just be uh, sort of vulnerable in front of them and and the reality was when I turned up to army special operations I knew the the doctoring stuff as much as a junior doctor can mm-hmm. you know but I knew all that but I didn't know how to apply that in the tactical world and so that required a, a huge degree of vulnerability to say hey I'm here I'm your boss you know technically you're meant to call me sir but can you please teach me how to do this job and and that was very much the the uh, mindset that I took into those roles and and so these and was lucky enough to have a brilliant bunch of medics over the years that that so I think that authenticity that vulnerability uh, creates that emotional content, uh, sort of connection with you with your workmates I think the a lot of it happens pretty organically through shared experiences but 
what happens after a significant event, be it positive or negative, particularly negative, is very important. That that debrief, that after action piece, and that very uh, deliberately not assigning blame is important. We we like to point the finger at one another and. And we like to lure ourselves into believing that oh, I wouldn't have done that or that wouldn't have happened to me. And and I'm the exact opposite. I, whenever I have cause to read a coronial inquest or in the media hear about something, I, I'm the exact opposite. I think, wow, that could have easily been me. That's you know, true so, though, isn't it? So, but yeah, for the grace of, of God, that's what yeah. the phrase is about. Could yeah. be any of us. But we like to delude ourselves into thinking, oh, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that or that wouldn't, you know. And and it's it's not the case. And so I think having that that sense of empathy for our professional colleagues is, is really important and banding together rather than dividing when you have a, a negative outcome uh, goes a long way to, to creating that team dynamic. I think the, uh, when it comes to building team resilience, it's, it's all the same stuff as, as we talk about in the Resilient Shield for individuals. I mean, we very deliberately aimed that more at the individual in, in light of that locus of control piece, Absolutely. what can I control, what can't I? And in a team environment, often there's a bunch that you can't control or influence that, that affects your resilience. But, but just that, uh, all that sort of stuff, I mean, paying attention to, to things like you, and it was easy for us, but you, that whole body layer in the resilience shield is sleep, diet and exercise. So making sure you're looking after that. And if you're in a position of, of authority, making sure that you're managing your subordinates to to allow them to have some leave and not not kind of grinding them into the, the ground but the another really big thing which fits into the professional layer is staying attached to the purpose of what you're doing and it can be very easy to get bogged down in the day-to-day grind of any given role but just trying to, to take that step back and looking at the bigger picture what you're contributing to and and just staying attached to that purpose I think is very important for people. Uh, and gratitude, pro-social gratitude is another massive one. Just making sure that you are acknowledging uh, people in your team and around you for, for what they provide. And, and that's a, a, a little bit of gratitude goes a really long way with people. It doesn't take much, but just that little bit of gratitude and encouragement. I think most people uh, certainly really appreciate that. And it, particularly if you're in a period of really hard work or busy work or just you know a tough period where people are grinding it out then just a little bit of gratitude really can fuel people to to get through that no that's really great and civility as well people forget the importance of civility in every team and again there's been studies that expressing gratitude and also being civil to your team and saying please and thank you reduces the risk of patience as well oddly enough and it, it it makes sense if you think about it because if you're in an environment where you feel supported respected uh, and people have got your back mm. and something goes wrong, you're more likely to call it out. But yeah. the other way is you're less likely to make a mistake because you're not looking over your shoulder worrying if someone's just going to come and give you a smack on the nose for something yeah. that you might or might not have done. You touched on something I very much wanted to talk about, actually, and that was the debrief. So yeah. we, um, we at Down to Protection often talk about airline pilots and how airline pilots have this amazing open disclosure uh, no blame culture whereby yeah. when something goes wrong nobody's looking to blame someone it's just yes. something this thing went wrong they've tried to remove hierarchy as much as they can so that anybody can call out a problem while there are obviously people who are leading and and, and yeah. those things anybody can call out a problem anyone can speak to the pilot if there's a problem that needs to be identified as it were 
And they also have debriefs where they talk openly and honestly about the things that went wrong and give people the opportunity to say that they made a mistake and to talk through it without judgment. We very much don't have that in healthcare, do we? No. <laughs> well, not I, enough anyway. I, I think we, yeah, I think we're trying to do better. And in the last five years, I, I've been aware of more of an emphasis on open disclosure and, and root cause analysis mm-hmm. approach to investigating incidents or near misses. So I think it's I think it's coming. I, you know, as you say, the the aviation industry has been a great model for a lot of this stuff because it is so high consequence and. And, you know, there's some fascinating, you, you might be aware, case studies of particularly in Asian cultures where it's inappropriate to challenge your, yes. your leader and a, a plane obviously crashing and the subordinate, you know, uh, not feeling comfortable to say, hey, captain, this we're about to hit something. And, and then it smears in and they capture it on the black box. Yeah, and, no, I, I did actually see that yeah, one. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. But, but certainly when you look at an after-action review, it is very much about a blame-free and rank-free environment. And if, if you've generated a culture where people don't feel they can speak up, you're never going to achieve that. Mm-hmm. So that comes back to the, the culture of the organisation, that authenticity, vulnerability, and your, your leadership style if you're in a position of leadership that uh, we, we used to use a, a model of leadership called adaptive leadership that worked quite well. And that's a more distributed leadership style where leadership is a, a practice rather than a position and the the influence goes to the person who's best suited to provide advice at that time, and 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 that worked well in in that uh, army special operations environment. It doesn't work well across the board, but it really levels that leadership structure. It it, it takes the hierarchy out of it and flattens it, and that's really what you want for after action reviews. You want to. A rank-free, blame-free environment. You're looking ideally at systems and and root cause analysis to get to the root cause of the problem. And it may be that someone was at fault. It may be that you end up finding someone who has clearly, you know, breached regulations or policies or procedures, and and then it becomes disciplinary. But for the most part, you're not going to find that. You're going to find a, a system flaw, and then that should be addressed. But unfortunately we tend to gravitate towards wanting a scapegoat. We want to point fingers. And, and that sort of talks to what, what I was touching on before, that we like to think that it wouldn't have been us. And if we can find someone who it was uh, rather than a system, then we can blame them and then it's it's all okay because you know we wouldn't have done it. it wouldn't. So get rid of that person, everything's fine. And, yeah, that's and, right. But when in reality, the, the way to do an AAR is rank free, blame free, ask three questions, what happened? Just an objective, emotionless timeline from start to finish with key events in between. What went well is the next question to ask because we tend to just gravitate straight towards the negative and dive down that rabbit hole. So force yourself to ask what went well because even in the most catastrophic situation, there's going to be some positives in there, but you'll miss them unless you, you go looking for them. They're the things that need to be reinforced. And then what didn't go well? And that's where you need to do the root cause analysis. It's not good enough to say what didn't go well. Well, Jono didn't do his job. Sack Jono, everything's fine. It doesn't. Well, you got to ask why didn't he? Was he trained for it? Yes, no. Well, did he have the right equipment? Yes, no. Was the policy and procedure right for it? Yes, no. And you keep asking why until you get to the root cause, and that's your starting point to then build structure to do it better next time. So to to change your training, to change your equipment, to to look at your policies and procedures, or whatever it may be. Uh, is what should fall out of that, but it should be at a, a systemic scale rather than an individual scale. 
No, I'm just thinking as you're saying that loads of examples are going through my head. Like, do you remember in the hospital, there was the situation where they had the same fitting for the nitrous. Yeah. And the, uh, yeah? yeah. And it was inevitable if yeah. it's the same fitting or yeah. things being the same color. Um, yeah. In dentistry, we have uh, all our local anesthetics are different colors. It sounds yeah. like a really silly thing to say, Not but it makes it a lot easier to very quickly identify what you're administering to that patient mm. and stuff like that. But that isn't somebody often thinking about that from the start. No. I've got this really wonderful idea. It's like often yeah. it comes from a mistake or error. Yep. And somebody yep. having to look back at that retrospectively and saying, why did, you know, not, you know what, what went well, what didn't go well, why didn't, you know, what yeah. happened, why didn't things go well? And then if it is that there's some sort of equipment or structural issue, people then going back and revisiting that and saying, well, you know, do you know what, if these fittings were different, yeah. then we can actually eliminate that problem. Yeah, for sure. And I, I can remember, a time, I'll be showing my age a little bit here, but where potassium oh, chloride, company, <laughs> potassium chloride was in a, a the exact same looking plastic container as as sodium chloride, and mm -hmm. you know you you flush your drips with sodium chloride all day long, that's fine. You flush them with potassium chloride, you kill someone, Absolutely. something, and and now they're very different. They're, they've got all sorts of orange and black all over them, and and I suspect it's the exact same thing. There was. People, you know, just making an honest mistake in, in, in maybe in the heat of the moment or maybe when they're 16 hours into a shift type thing mm -hmm. and flushing a line with the wrong thing, killing someone. And, and then if you, if you don't do that root cause analysis, if you just say, oh, well, they, that person did this thing wrong, sack them, you know, they're to blame, then the, the system never changes. But, and like you say, the, the gas fittings, that uh, catastrophic outcome, I think it was in a kid's hospital. But the, the, that's an opportunity to not hang someone out to dry as a scapegoat, but to look at, well, why did this happen? Yeah. Do that root cause analysis. And, and then you come up with a solution. Well, let's change the line. So it can only, you can't do this again. And so it's, that's the, the, the way that, that AAR, after action review and a root cause analysis, leads to positive systemic change rather than just throwing someone in front of the bus. And I think you see it all the time when you go to hospital. I went and had a procedure recently and the surgeon actually labelled the left and right hand side of my yeah. body, yeah. which I thought was fascinating because I would have thought it was quite apparent. Apparently it's not. And <laughs> it, but, you know, stuff like that has happened because somewhere, someone mm. along the line has has got that wrong. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, we are only human and we are going to make mistakes. Yeah. And some of the mistakes we make are going to be quite serious. And that's really confronting, I think, as a healthcare provider, because... When you step back from this, not one of us gets up in the morning with the intention of making a mistake. No. Not one of us gets up in the morning with the intention of causing harm. But un unfortunately, sometimes things are going to happen. They're not going to yes. go to plan. And that's when we need our skills. We need our resilience. We need our team. We need to know what to do to bounce back and to invest in ourselves so that we can recover from this because we have an obligation to ourselves, our families, our friends, and our other patients. We always say the person most at risk is the patient who comes in the room immediately after something's gone wrong mm. because you're not thinking about that person. You're distracted. Yeah. You know, so we do have obligations all across this board, and that's why this is so important. So, Dan, thank you for your time. Do you have any oh, last pleasure. words or advice for me? Uh, for you personally or for, <laughs> for the listener? Or? Sure, I'll take either. <laughs> <laughs> I think just be kind to yourself is probably that's something I'm trying to do a lot better as I – kind of negotiate middle age and reflect on my military fun, experiences. And Not that I have any yeah, military but, experience, but no, no, middle no, age. I think we, times. professions like medicine um, and dentistry, I imagine, are, are, are very 
there's an expectation of 100% success. And you, you mentioned it before, no one gets up in the morning and, and goes to work with the intent of harming someone. But at the end of the day, we're all humans and our patients are all humans and it's a complex space and things are going to go wrong. But I think we are our own uh, worst critics when it comes to when something goes wrong. And I think just that easing off a little bit, I think we often lose sight of all the, the things that went well and there's actually a good book called The Gap and the Gain that looks at this. We, we lose sight of the gain, all the good things that have happened, how far we've come, all, we, all that we've achieved. And we just focus on the gap, what didn't happen or what went wrong or what we haven't achieved yet. And, you know, taking some time to, to reflect in a balanced fashion on, on all the good things that we're doing, particularly in that scenario where you have had one sort of bad outcome that might have led to a complaint or what have you. But, yeah, just just being a bit less hard on ourselves and our work colleagues, I think would be my last parting point. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much for your time pleasure. today. My pleasure. Thank you, Dan, for that relevant and helpful content. And thank you all for listening. We do hope this podcast was helpful to you and we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.